Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light. Go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson, and today's episode is going to be a fun one. Well, at least for me. I'm going to talk about some of the things I feel like I've really learned in over three decades being obsessed with deer hunting. It's not very often I watch regular old TV. With the amount of streaming services out there and the sheer availability of on-demand content, it's not all that common for a lot of people to just flip through the channels. And if you do, you'll notice that a lot of stations run the same show on repeat for hours at a time. And in between a major ridiculousness binge, you might also notice a bunch of commercials for products and services that are thinly veiled frauds. Think class action lawsuits, limited time only amazing products that will change your life. And well, a hell of a lot of pharmaceuticals that, you know, might make you skinny, but will probably also give you explosive diarrhea, make you farsighted at night and nearsighted in the day and cause swelling, rashes and open festering wounds on your undercarriage. Anyway... I recently watched some old school TV, subjected myself to those commercials, and voila, this podcast was born kind of mostly out of a little nostalgia, to be honest. It doesn't really matter. Enjoy. One thing that has really taken hold recently amongst us silly Americans is this whole generational divide thing. Millennials, in particular, seem to have a serious thing against the baby boomer generation, and to some extent, Gen Xers. Gen Z is out there getting into the workforce, and they're starting to figure some stuff out, and other generations are starting to figure some stuff out about them. What's interesting is that the complaints from younger generations about the older generations have been largely the same since Socrates was robed up in the town square talking philosophy on a Sunday afternoon in Athens. Right now, it seems like the easy target is the boomer generation, you know, because they're retiring, and I guess to a lot of young folks, appear to have had it easy. This is most commonly framed in some way about money, 
And you'll see memes and all those silly TikTokers out there talking about how it only took a boomer 13 hours on a minimum wage salary to buy a brand new house, raise a family, put six kids through college, and retire at 48. While nowadays, they need to work 296,000 hours at middle wage to rent a spare closet from a slimy landlord who is definitely going to raise their rent every month and who is the epitome of corporate greed. They'll gloss over that it mostly wasn't the people born into the system that made the rules or the fact that for as hard as they think they have it, it's very unlikely they'll get drafted into a deeply unpopular war to go spend some time in the jungle fighting people who not only had a serious home field tactical advantage, but also the emotional advantage of fighting for their homeland. My dad spent a year and a half over there and it didn't sound like it was a whole lot of fun or that things were super easy for him. You could gloss over the reality of post-World War II America and a long fight for civil rights. You know, those poor kids shot up at Kent State by their own government and a whole lot of things that wouldn't be all that fun to live through today. And, you know, the other end of the spectrum isn't without merit in their complaints. The young kids today do face a system that is set up to extract their blood, sweat, and tears and whatever money they can earn and transfer it to somebody else. They were born into a nerfed-up world to some extent, and that was a lie. Everyone gets a trophy, but also everyone gets an adult world that doesn't give a shit about their feelings. Life is hard for all generations, and it's hard for almost all people. You younger folks listening to that might not believe it, but you'll get there eventually. That's one of the things that I've learned as an almost millennial, but technically a Gen Xer by about four months. As I get older and I stare down the barrel of my 44th birthday, I think about this stuff a lot. It's fun to identify with a specific generation, you know, be a part of the tribe, if you will. We are, as humans, pretty driven to be around like-minded people, and this extends into our world as deer hunters. But one thing you learn about being in the broad tribe of deer hunting, and then the smaller tribe of bow hunting, and then the smaller tribe of public land bow hunting, is that we are all playing a weird game that doesn't really matter because our journey is just ours. Whether you collectively suffer with a bunch of folks or you go the whole quiet desperation way that Thoreau mentioned, the journey is yours. The accountability is yours. Your reactions, it's your effort. You know, the discipline or the lack of it. The enjoyment level, it's on you. In life and in deer hunting. This is what I want to start this podcast with because I feel it in my bones. When it comes to deer hunting, we want to be special. We want to fit into the cool kids club. And you know who is really in that club? Mostly just people who kill big bucks quite often. That's kind of it. Now, you can get bonus points for doing it all on public land or doing it only from the ground with a longbow or whatever. But the truth is that all of us just want to be in the club that kills big bucks. I can tell you one thing about this after a lifetime of deer hunting and quite a few years in the hunting industry. That's dumb. The focus on big bucks just because they are big is kind of weird. That club is full of people who have all different levels of opportunity and finances and believe this or not, skill. Heaping praise on anyone for killing big bucks without acknowledging how they do it is just wild to me. And it kind of confirms how little a lot of people know about big bucks. Because here's the thing. A lot of big deer are killed in ways that aren't challenging at all. If there is one thing that I believe about deer hunting, it's that this is so damaging to so many people because for most folks, it's a nearly insurmountable challenge. 
it can be that variable. And I'm here to tell you, it is that variable. You probably can't actually get admitted into the true big buck club because you'll never be able to afford it. Kind of like a yacht club or I don't know, golfing at some of the best courses maybe. You guys know how little I know about golf. I think it's better to hunt your own hunt, so to speak. Find your own reasons to be out there that go way beyond just inches of antler. And I know that most folks aren't pure trophy hunters, but I also know there's a lot of bullshit mixed into the messaging of trophy hunting. And you know how you can tell? Just look for the weasel words. They exist in all facets of life, and especially with hot-button political issues where the terminology is always changing, but the issues never get fixed. It's also obvious in hunting. We don't kill deer, we harvest them. While harvest actually is a technically correct word for it, if you want to use it, we all know why we say it. We don't trophy hunt anymore. We target mature bucks. We wait until the deer are prime age, and then we selectively try to remove them because they've done their breeding and they've lived their good life. And that sounds great, you know, until that target buck, the mature one you've waited for, I don't know, five or six years on, walks in and he's busted both of his main beams off. How many folks are shooting that deer then? He's still mature. He still has all of that challenge rolled into his existence. So the antlers shouldn't matter, right? Right. Sure. Yeah, totally. Never mind. It's a hell of a lot harder to age deer on the hoof than people think, or that a real mature deer, say, I don't know, an eight and a half year old instead of a five and a half year old would be a hell of a lot more of a challenge. But no one is letting their bucks start to get on the old downswing of their antlers and killing them as gnarly hundred inchers with huge bellies and gray faces. Nope. It just so happens that our definition of mature coincides nicely with the biggest racks bucks are ever going to grow. And listen, if that's your jam and you love it, go for it. I mean that. But if you're looking to get into that club and feel like the guy working the door just isn't going to open the velvet rope for you, it might be time to look for something different out of your hunting. That's just one of the things I, I you know, truly believe after a long life of obsessing over deer. Another is that if you want to truly enjoy hunting, figure everything you can out about venison. Now, this will sound weird coming from a meat-eater guy, but I don't mean find the most obscure, show-offish recipes for your venison that no one in their right mind would actually make besides someone who is looking for Instagram likes on their stand-and-stir videos. I mean the process, the appreciation of venison. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. 
And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. This is anecdotal. I know this. But one of the things that has happened to me as I've killed lots of deer and mixed in some big ones is that I'm more interested in the meat now than I ever was before. Feeding my family means more to me than another big rack on the wall. That has taught me something. Focusing on procuring venison has extended my season. It's changed how I feel about hunting. It's made it more enjoyable, partially just because it makes me go more. Now, if that seems weird or like BS, let me explain. I like hunting deer, and I like shooting deer. I like the process of settling my pin on their side or the crosshairs. I like handing my daughters headlamps and heading into the woods at night to figure out blood trails, whether they created them or I did. I like the feeling of knowing the freezer is full or the feeling of a four-hour burger grinding session, knowing that it'll be tacos and spaghetti sauce all year long. Just that aspect, owning it and trying to appreciate it, has changed how I look at my deer hunting. It makes me happy to get doe tags or hunt somewhere for a few days knowing that I'm going to be hunting hungry and any deer that walks by and gives me the right shot will at least draw some consideration from me. And on that note, another thing that I've learned that kind of relates to me giving different generations shit at the beginning of this podcast is a lot of people want you to believe that deer hunting is easy for them. This goes for hunting industry folks and non-hunting industry folks alike. But the truth is, most people don't tell you how hard it is for them to actually get it done. They don't tell you their struggles, which far outweigh the wins. The truth is that hunting is hard for most folks. And if it's not, they aren't looking for much of a challenge. Because believe me on this, if you think you're really good, you just haven't put yourself in enough situations to learn that you're not. I think this is one of the things that our current life with our current technology has really skewed you know, how we see the world. 
take Cam Haynes and David Goggins, for example. They might be two of the most inspirational people out there. And you can see how much amazing shit they've done and continue to do with their lives because they plaster it all over. It's everywhere. They will also tell anyone who listens about their struggles. But I promise you that doesn't translate as well as some of their successes. I'd bet good money that they both experience serious motivational issues probably every day of their lives. They just found the discipline to tamp that shit down and power through. But you know, the struggle is there because it's part of the human experience. And we always want to project an image of kicking ass and taking name tags. But most of us are just kicking our own asses and well, not taking names, I guess. This is true for life and true for hunting. But we don't need to pollute hunting with too much stuff that really pisses us off. I see this with a lot of Western hunters who focus on the non-residents ruining their hunting. I see it with a lot of whitetail hunters who think the wolves ate all their deer. Or that the neighbor who has 500 acres and doesn't let anyone hunt and always kills giant bucks. You know, and he's the worst guy in the world and they just happen to be this poor lowly hunter on 20 acres that borders their property and can barely kill a spike. What I know about life in deer hunting is you can change, and better yet, you should. Hunters are notorious for resisting change, and I suspect that's probably an evolutionary thing. We put up a lot of guardrails to keep things consistent, because when they aren't, it's just as likely things will get worse as opposed to better. But deer hunting doesn't need to mirror general life. If you're unhappy with your hunting spot, you can find another one. Don't tell me you can't, because you can now, it might not be super awesome. It might not be free. It might not be five minutes down the road from your house, but the options are out there somewhere. Or, you know, if you hate non-residents and think they ruined your hunting, look at it a different way. Imagine having the advantage of being right there to scout, to hunt, to camp, to whatever. Now imagine someone who lives a thousand miles away and has less time than you to do all those things. Don't you think you can out-hunt that person nine out of ten times? And if you can't, why not? There's no way that person can scout and find every little seep or hidden water hole, every bench that the bulls or the bucks might bet on. There's no way that person can compete with you. Why not get ahead of him and all of his buddies and use your advantage? Now, I'm going to rapid fire a few more things that I've come to truly believe about hunting before I wrap this whole thing up and warn my boss about the hate mail that is probably going to roll in over it. I firmly believe that most hunters aren't patient enough when it comes to blood trailing. Not only how long they give an uncertain hit, but how long they try to figure it out and grid search and give it their best effort. Blood trailing is a skill that you can work on, and it's something that requires real discipline and patience. It's also something that you're going to have to do, whether you like it or not. It's a part of deer hunting that can be really fun or downright horrible. Try to make everyone lean toward the fun category if you can, and you'll enjoy hunting far more and feel better about yourself along the way. I also think that we should help each other get better. I know this sounds woo-woo, but I believe it. If you're decent at this stuff, help someone who is new. If you're new, try to find someone who seems to know what they're doing and work with them. I know this isn't that easy, and a lot of stuff comes into play here, but I can tell you this. Every time I've tried to help someone get better at hunting, not only has it made me feel better, it's made me a better hunter. Sure, it comes with real challenges, and there are plenty of people out there who will take advantage of you, but sometimes you just get to pass along a gift that is worth a hell of a lot. 
Now, if you're worried about taking someone under your wing who might shoot a buck that you might want to shoot, ask yourself why that matters at all. Does it really? The answer is up to you, but at least consider it before making that decision. Now, another thing that I truly believe is this. If you want to get more out of hunting, try to learn to love the animals, not just value them for what they can become, but love them for what they are. The sheer existence of whitetails or elk or bears or antelope or whatever just makes our lives better, kind of like dogs for most of us. And while we love our dogs, we often look at animals we hunt sort of in an abstract way. They are this goal, this thing we want to possess, but they are also animals with a connection to their world and a will to survive. They're freaking cool. And if you learn to love them, you'll want to be around them more. Not just while you're on stand with a weapon in your hand, but also all that extra time in the off season. Maybe take the kids for a drive in the summer just to look at them. When you start to think about deer in that way, you start to seek out reasons to try to be around them. I think that's something that we miss in a lot of our hunting advice because it's all about scouting and strategizing to kill the, the one. But a good way to get better at this stuff and just like it more is to try to appreciate deer for the many things they represent to us besides a grip and grin photo. Now, lastly, as old Gen Xer latchkey kid who got to see the world before the internet and the world after, I'll say this. There are very, very few reasons to be a prick to someone. This goes for standing in line at the grocery store or online in your favorite hunting forum, maybe parked at the parking area of the WMA. If you're going to be nasty to someone, please make sure you have a hell of a good reason. I don't think disagreeing over hunting strategies is one of them. I think that's dumb. Getting jealous over a buck someone else killed, it's dumb. Shitting on someone for shooting a dink, dumb. It's okay to be passionate about this stuff. You should be. But it's also good to remember that everyone is on their own journey in hunting and in life. They have their own struggles, their own anxiety, their own stress, the secret self-loathing, the addictions, the you name it. Making them feel worse over hunting is dumb. Just as dumb as trying to make yourself feel wildly superior over this stuff is dumb. <sighs> well, I could probably do this for a lot longer than I'm going to, but I'm not going to subject you to that. Instead, I'm going to wrap this sucker up and move on to next week when I'm going to talk about individual deer and how we don't really factor this into our hunting decisions, but we definitely should. That's it for this week, my friends. I'm Tony Peterson. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundation's podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much for your support. I can't tell you how much it means to all of us at Meat Eater that you guys check in and listen to all these podcasts and you know, Clay's podcast and you watch the Element guys hunting Neil Guy or whatever the hell they're doing this week. Your support means everything to us. We don't have anything without you. So thank you for that. If you want to check out some more content, go to TheMeatEater.com and you will have more than enough stuff to fill your time as we ride out this January and wait for turkey season. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now. And if you are planning on getting after it, Make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. 
mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.